Today, I have a very interesting gentleman on the podcast. My goodness, his bio is so huge. I'm not going to tell it all in this spiff, but I am going to read out one paragraph from the front page of his website to give you a sense of what this man is about. Quote, something big is happening in the world today. We're living at a time of unprecedented change, politically, socially, economically, environmentally, the old systems that have managed our lives are no longer working. We've lost trust in our leaders and lost touch with our certainty. Faced with all this confusion, it's easy to feel lost, stuck and like you don't matter. What a statement to open this podcast with. Welcome to the podcast, Darren. Thank you so much, Sylvia. It's a real honor to be here. I'm very, very delighted to speak. Now, to your you. second name is Abrahams. So yeah. um, you're an opera singer. And you're very much involved with social change in the view of therapy, working with people who have people who've experienced trauma. You've done work, I believe, in some of the camps there that were in Calais in France. Are they still there? Uh, the, the camps in, in Calais are, are no longer officially there, but there are still many, many people trying to get through to the UK, as you'll see in the UK news, if you watch it at all, that we, we have many migrants trying to cross the channel all the time right now. So it's a big, it's a big challenge. Yeah. Now, I think what we'll start with is your musical history and we'll go from there. So you're an opera singer. You've performed in some major big stages in the UK. You've, I think you've performed in my home country here in Wexford in Ireland at the opera festival there. Have, so yeah. tell me, how did you get into music? How did you become an opera singer? How did that all happen? Sure. Well, first of all, I think I should say that I don't necessarily just call myself an opera singer these days opera is a big part of my my history and I'll you know I'll talk about that right now but at this point in my life I'm singing many many different genres of music so I call my I call myself a singer really um what genres of music are you including so we'll say you can do opera so what other, yes. what other genres are you interested in well I, I started out my musical life in musical theater that was my first love and it's still actually one of my biggest loves I love musical theater um and you asked me like how I got started in music I think my very very early on I was introduced to music by my grandmother who's not a musician who's not a music practitioner but loved music and loved musicals and so from a really early age I was kind of put in front of uh, MGM musicals on the TV, you know, those big kind of 1940s, 1950s, big glossy films. And you know, I loved that. It really appealed to me. Me and my sister, we, we loved that genre of music. But she also loved jazz, you know, kind of the, you know, the big classic jazz, swing, swing era jazz, Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra, that kind of music. Uh, so that was also a very big part of my, my experience growing up. And I grew up in a household, um, not, not a completely English household. My mum's Israeli. And we always had people from all over the world staying in the house because to, to make a little bit more money, my parents would have foreign students coming to learn English in Brighton. So there was always other languages, other cultures, so other kinds of music in my life. So there was a big, rich musical world as I was growing up. Um, 
and at the age of 13 I had the opportunity to start singing lessons and that was a classical vocal technique so I started to develop my voice through that classical style but I didn't often sing in the classical style I would use it for musical theatre and for other things but my voice was moving in that direction and then when eventually I went to study I studied as an actor first I went to um to university to study drama um and I did music on the side and that music had a classical focus to it as well. And then when I left university and went to London to find work, I was, you know, I, I auditioned for every musical going, like the mid nineties, like Miss Saigon and Les Miserables and Phantom of the Opera and all those things. And they kept on saying, oh, the amazing voice, amazing voice, doesn't quite fit, don't quite know how to, to place it. Um, and that was because of the, the kind of classical technique that I had. So I started to listen more to what people were saying to me. I got an opportunity to be in a Christmas show with an opera director and that opera director invited me to be in a show that he was doing. He needed someone with musical theatre background. And then that spiralled into I got offered another opera job and then another opera job. And I thought, OK, so the universe is taking me towards opera. So uh, brilliant. I want to sing everything. I like opera. I love classical music. Why wouldn't I want to do that, too? So I auditioned to get to the Royal Academy of Music. I went in as a postgraduate. I was there for one year on the vocal postgraduate course, two years in the opera department, and one year at the National Opera Studio. And by the time I was spat out the other end of that whole process, I was a, I was an opera singer. So that's kind of that's the, the my musical journey. But there's a lot of influence, isn't it? Yeah, you had one very important mentor, I believe, a famous opera singer by the name of... Ian Partridge. Maybe it's Ian Partridge. 
He was not actually an opera singer. Ian was a leader singer and oratorio singer. I mean, a wonderful, wonderful singer with the most beautiful natural voice and a wonderful teacher. I was incredibly lucky to be taught by him in my early years at the academy. Um, and he gave me a really solid grounding in natural use of the voice. Uh, but he wasn't, but he, yeah, he wasn't an opera singer. And he, there was a point where he said, actually, you need to go and learn with, train with people who are opera singers because that's not my style. Okay, okay. And what led you then into musical theatre? I know there's probably a crossover between music theatre and opera and all that. Like, why do you love it? What is it about it that you love it so much? Uh, it's the storytelling. I think what, what I love about musical theatre, which is different from opera, is that the music in musical theatre is a conduit for a narrative. You know, the, the words are as important in musical theatre as the song. And I think in opera, it's the other way around. It's that the, the, the words are less important than the emotion being conveyed by the music. Um, and I really enjoy the storytelling. I'm, I'm, uh, I love acting. Like acting was a very, you know, I trained as an actor. I did loads of acting. For me, it was always the same thing. And it was interesting for me to enter the opera world where even though opera is an acting genre, acting wasn't, it, at that time, at least when I was training, it wasn't necessarily considered a prerequisite for becoming an opera. You did acting training on your, as part of your course, but many, many of the singers that I was working with were not natural actors necessarily. They were amazing singers. And I came from another way around. I think that's also why I was, I, you know, I love musical theatre because it's, it's, it, it encompasses everything. I, you might be gathering from the way that I'm speaking and also the way that you've introduced me is that I'm not someone who likes boxes. I'm not someone who likes to be kind of um, labelled or stuck in a particular genre or a particular way of working. I like to explore all sorts of different things. And for me, music and performance is not about one style. It's not about doing one thing. St musical theatre will allow you to act, will allow you to dance, it will allow you to sing, it will allow you to express yourself in all sorts of different ways. I'm really happy to say that as my opera career co progressed, more of that was available in the opera world as well. So, you know, it's there in the opera world. But I think there's been a lot of influence from musical theatre and film and other genres to actually support the evolution of opera as an art form so that it's more... Um, so because I think the audience is used to watching a lot more realism. They're used to watching films. They're used to watching TV. They're used to watching things like musicals and plays. So when you go to an opera, it's not so acceptable anymore to just stand and sing like they did maybe in bygone eras. So the, the acting part, the looking the part, the movement and the dance, that's all hugely important, particularly in contemporary opera. And looking at the whole opera, I'll call it a box, if you will, just to call it its own genre. <laughs> Is it growing or is it static? You know, what way is it at the moment? Because there's various opinions on classical music, the future of classical music, is it going to stay with us? Many people believe, yes, it's, it's you know, it's a 300 year old art form, it's going to remain with us. But what about opera in particular? Do you think it still has a loyal audience? It's holding its own? It's a really, really interesting question. And it's a difficult one for me to answer because I don't really live in that world anymore. I'm adjacent to it. I have many people that I know within it. I step in and out of it. What I observe from the outside is that I, I do believe that opera still has an audience. And I think that opera has an audience into the future. The issue around opera is accessibility to it. And it's not, 
there's been a, a conversation for at least as long as I've been a professionals, which is the last 20 odd years or maybe even longer, um, that opera needs to somehow change itself to become more acceptable to a modern audience. And I don't believe that. I don't think that's the case. I think opera is its own genre and opera needs to be what opera is. We just need to be able to open the doors differently for people to be able to access it. And, so in um, other words, what you're saying is making it more accessible by maybe just explaining the backstory to opera. So for example, if I look at some of Mozart's operatic works, for example, very often you hear the title, but you don't hear the backstory. Do you think the backstory needs to be spoken about more to make it more interesting and accessible to the audience that potentially could get into it? No, I don't, because I think that work is already being done. Mm -hmm. I think that um, opera, every opera company, large or small, has an education or outreach department, which do amazing work. I've done a lot of my work through my career within those departments. And I think that there's a huge amount of really creative and interesting ways to explain the plots of opera and the, um, the background of the opera and everything. All of that's there and all of that's happening. I don't think that we need to do that. I mean, we need to continue doing that. We need to do it better. Some places we need to do it better. Some, I think we do it really well, actually, as an industry. The issue is, and the issue that's, that's, um, that's shifting at the moment, first of all, is around uh, accessibility for people who wouldn't normally enter the opera space. So how do you make it more affordable? How do you make it more inclusive? How do you have more people of colour and minorities, people with disabilities, potential, like more of the, the, um, the general population represented on the stage and not just on the stage, but also backstage uh, within the, the, all the hierarchies of, of an opera company or a classical music company. So it's not enough just to have black and brown faces on stage. We need to have them also in the management and in so all different you what you're sort of heading into like would i be a bit strong in saying that it's a bit elitist in I some ways or is it just that there's a certain population that has always stayed with it and all you know that that needs to break up a bit and open up a bit look it's a, it's a it's a complex art form so what i was going to say is that it has to start with education and it has to start in schools. And that's not only about opera companies coming into schools and teaching about opera. It's about schools being a much more uh, creative, inclusive environment where different genres of music or culture can be, um, can be explored and expressed. So if you embed an interest in a particular art form from an early age, then you have a choice as you get older. You know, if you've been introduced into the opera house, or you've been introduced to the ballet or introduced to the theatre, and you know that it's a place where you can exist, and where also you might see yourself on stage, even if it's a 300-year-old piece of work, then I think you're more likely to come back later on down the line. But there is, there is an economic issue here, is that for the, the whole amount of time that I have been a performer, the audiences are mostly older people. So those older people are always there. So there must be a new generation of older people coming in and enjoying opera because I think there's an economic factor to that. There's also, you know, people get invited to the opera by a friend who already has a ticket that tends to be older people. There's a, there's a whole shift, I think, which means that opera may be more accessible or appealing to people with a little bit more liquid capital or a bit more investment in culture. But I do see that also shifting and changing. 
I think what's really interesting is, and I think Streetwise Opera in the UK, I did an interview re, uh, a couple of months oh, back or longer wonderful. with wonderful charity. And I was speaking with Ray Trombetta there and he gave the example of bringing in opera professionals. They're doing the marriage of Figaro with these people that are trying to recover or in recovery from homelessness. And I mean, it's an amazing story, like to think that these people said, oh, Jeannie, we can't do that. And then suddenly they break it into bite sized pieces and they're on stage. That's yeah. what it's about. That's what it's about. Absolutely. That's exactly what it's about. The 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 pro the problem with opera, I mean, it's part of its great strength and charm, and also one of the barriers to it is that it's opera has become and classical music in general about perfection, about a perfection yes. of sound and a perfection of performance, a perfection of pronunciation, like all of those things, and that is amazing. But also, that's a massive barrier for entry. So yes, I'm not saying, that you should, yeah, you should take away the expectation of exceptional art and exceptional quality, but also recognize that for a company like Streetwise Opera, working with people who've experienced homelessness, that perfection is not part of the, of the equation. Actually, what's, what's part of the equation is this incredible universal story and this amazing music and this wonderful um, art creative experience, collaborative creative experience that you're having putting that piece of music on. Yeah. What I what I recognize and what you know was a big issue throughout the whole of my career was the the um, the hierarchy that exists within the classical music industry itself, or at least did. You know, I'm I'm seeing a lot of barriers beginning to come down between what is seen as the high art that goes on the stage that costs a lot of money and the uh, community outreach art that happens around the fringes. So. Yeah. You know, opera companies and the intendants and the big singers and all those people kind of look down a little bit on the, oh, it's the community side. Whereas actually both are equally important. You have to have the high art quality. I art couldn't agree stage. more. I couldn't agree yeah. more. Yeah, That's, I couldn't yeah. agree more. Now, you just said there about bringing it into the community. Now, you've done a lot of work with uh, trauma, people who have been through traumatic experiences. And my goodness, our world is really challenged with this at the moment. And you work as a facilitator and project leader in the fields of personal, cultural and community development. So what kind of projects are you involved with under that umbrella of your work? Well, I, I trained as a trauma therapist. So I'm actually a qualified trauma therapist with a private practice. So I work directly with individuals who've experienced traumatic events in their lives or ongoing traumatic events in their lives. Uh, so that is an underpinning of a lot of the work that I do, just that baseline knowledge of how the nervous system operates under threat and how to support people to transcend that and heal from that. Then as a musician, what, what I do, a lot of the work that I do is about using music or working with music as a tool for supporting that change. Okay. Um, so I, I, you know, one of the, the big things that I do is that I'm a wellbeing advisor and trainer for Musicians Without Borders. Musicians Without Borders is an absolutely wonderful organization. I think we are now 22 years old, uh, run by Laura Hassler, who is an incredible visionary and uh, um, practitioner, music practitioner, who 20 years ago during the, the Bosnian Civil War kind of saw uh, a need and a use for music that could be about solidarity, could be about advocacy, could be about bringing people together to heal through musical expression. So I've been very lucky to be part of that team for the last six years, working alongside my colleagues, working uh, the remit of Musicians Without Borders is to 
support and train musicians who might live in conflict or post-conflict areas, however we might define that these days, because it's very blurred right now after the events of the last five years, uh, to, so to support those, those people to use music as a tool for trauma regulation, for community building, and for, for conflict resolution. So that, that's what we do. Before the interview, when I met you first, you told me that you spent some time in Calais in France. There was a whole situation evolving there. If this was ever before Brexit, or the, I suppose it, you might right. say it was in the lead up into, you know, before Brexit or whatever. Just tell us about what happened in Calais. What was it like to be there as a therapist? What did you see or what impact did you have? Well, in Calais, I wasn't there specifically as a therapist. I was there building a program, um, a skills development program, education program. Um, so my, my own organization, The Human Hive, we work to, to train and support people to create a more inclusive, welcoming and sustainable world. And we started out, myself and my business partner, Kate, we started out 2015. We met because we felt really moved to go and support people who were stuck in a temporary shantytown refugee camp on the borders of Europe, not 50 miles away from where I sit here in Brighton on the south coast of the UK. But we can't just ignore 10,000 people on our doorstep who, you know, who are fleeing war and persecution in most counts and are looking for a better life. So Kate's a teacher. Kate had this idea of converting a double-decker bus into a, into a school. I really liked that idea. I found it online. I got in touch with her. We had coffee together. We, we cooked up a plan. We would go to Calais and talk to people about this idea. And what they said to us is, yeah, we'd love a bus. That would be great. But actually what we really want is teachers. Can you send us more teachers? So we, we sent Kate for six months to go out and co-create an educational program with displaced people that was based around uh, psychosocially protective activity, around skills building, around uh, basic needs. Like what, how can we support people where they were to live a better and more comfortable life with skills that they could take away with them. And in that process, we recognized that we needed to train more people. So together, we built a training that was psychosocially protective, that was going to be trauma informed. So my background as a trauma therapist and community organizer, and Kate's background as an educator, we brought those together. We took those ideas into the camp. And what we saw there was a huge amount of dysregulation, but not necessarily so much amongst the refugees themselves, people who were still in their fight flight mode and still kind of on their way somewhere. So there's still a lot of energy in the body and, you know, a purpose. Whereas for a lot of the, the volunteers that were coming to the camp, and there were many, many people who were drawn and still are drawn to working within this environment, many of the volunteers were coming and bringing their own trauma with them and getting traumatized by the experience. So my focus and our focus as an organization shifted quite quickly away from the direct support maybe of people going through displacement and more into the upskilling, the resourcing and supporting of those people who were doing the helping. Um, and that's a way that we could see that we could probably be more effective is that you know, there was only one of me and one of Kate, but if we could train and support and resource several hundred more, then actually there'd be a lot more work. Uh, there'd be a lot impact. more work done, there'd be a lot more impact. And also people will be able to go into that experience without getting damaged by it. Okay, okay. And what kind of traumas? I presume there's some terrible stories you've heard, but have you met people trying to migrate from Africa, Syria? What, 
main countries like have you worked with people from all of those places and all over the world but as a trauma therapist trauma is not in the event itself trauma is in the way that yeah it's well it's in the way that your nervous system responds to that event and the way that you you might get stuck into patterns so yes i've met people who've been through extraordinarily difficult experiences but i have to say that some of those experiences maybe not the extremes of war are replicated here in our own populations in western europe people who have been through very very challenging upbringings difficult home lives have 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 grown up in poverty have had abusive parents you know that actually the nervous system works in the same way whether you are being beaten by a by a family member or you're escaping from a war the context may be different but actually the nervous system responds the same way so whenever I train people I remind them all the time is that we trauma is a human experience it's not something that's happening to those people over there it's happening to us as well and so when we are moved to come and offer support and solidarity to people that we perceive as going through very challenging life experiences we have to recognize that we might be bringing our own stuff with us and if we are bringing stuff we are all bringing stuff not, not a single person is <laughs> completely not. completely we have, yeah we have to understand how to manage that in that space because we can't be truly helpful and supportive if we are bringing our own stuff into the mix so it's an equalizer for me as well let's not look at them and us those poor people over there with trauma it's like we are we are a human family here and there we will we are here to support and resonate with each other if we're standing in the support space right now it is our duty to be to take care of ourselves as much as possible so that we can extend that care to those we're there to support now for somebody who might want to get involved with your organization and really feel that they want to help what is the best way that people can help your organization and support it in some way um, join our um, online community I'll, I'll give you all the, the the links to put into the show notes we have an online community where you can meet other people who are doing like-minded things around the world uh, you can be connected up to other organizations who are doing you know on the ground work you can support our we have a full-time school because we, we've our, our work is not solely based on supporting people going through displacement we work in all sorts of different environments. We have a full-time school right now in the Dominican Republic, which is not focused on displacement. It's, it's focused on supporting young people to learn how to manage themselves and live a wholehearted, purposeful life. So the, the connections all the time, for us, we talk about safety, belonging, and purpose. So whatever environment that you're in, whether it's in a refugee camp or whether it's in a school in the Dominican Republic, these are the fundamentals for flourishing in life. So we have also a well-being program where we, we train people in how to embed well-being into the things that they do. We have training for organizations to be able to share their skills better, create their own projects. But there's a lot of different things that we do with those three, those three principles at their heart. Now, we're moving into a new year and a lot has happened with COVID. And personally speaking, I find that music is a great addition to my life, always has been since very young to get me through challenging circumstances. Now, I know music can be a trigger for some people in a negative way. So what advice could you give to somebody who might be listening to this podcast who's going through some form of a challenging circumstance? There's so much going on 
on our streets these days and there's so many challenges i see it myself that you know with the understanding of social science and coming from that perspective and looking at society there are challenges there on the streets and sometimes all someone needs is a word or a phrase to hold them together for that period of time what advice could you give to somebody that's listening to this podcast that might be going just through something difficult I say the, the first thing that comes into my mind because you know that's that's a that's a complex question and there are there there's a complex answer that I could give but at its fundamental I would say recognize that everything this too shall pass is that any experience that you're going through is about a moment in time and it will not last forever so what we need to do in the moments of real challenge and difficulty is as much as possible connect back to yourself connect back to your physical body when we go through traumatic experiences when we go through overwhelm i call it dysregulation you know when the, when we're not quite able to manage ourselves and make choices make them make the choices that we'd like to make all the time because our nervous system is hijacking us if you come back into a connection with your physical body it will support you to calm down so first of all, find your feet on the floor and literally make a connection with your feet to the ground. Put your attention into the sensation of that contact. When you put your attention to the lower half of your body, you switch which part of the nervous system you're working from and you move from a fight flight response into more of a rest and digest. We have these two sides of the nervous, the autonomic nervous system that operate that support us to operate in different ways. So connecting to the lower half of your body, your feet on the floor, will ground you into a calmer part of your nervous system. Second thing we can do is take a breath. So the breathing often gets dysregulated when we are going through difficult experiences. Just reconnect. How are you breathing? And if you can, close your mouth, breathe in through your nose, and then let go of your lower jaw and just let that breath out in a sigh. The longer out breath you have, the more connected you are to, again, that calmer rest and digest part of your nervous system. And the last thing is to change your mind. Notice if you're putting a lot of your attention onto the most challenging things in your environment. Now, that is a, a human imperative. It's part of our biological upbringing. We have the negativity bias where we we are putting out all of our attention onto the most challenging thing, just in case it jumps out and tries to eat us. But recognize that a lot of those things we have internalized, they don't actually exist in the outside world. So if you can find a helpful thought for yourself, something that helps your body to feel calm, it can be thinking of a favorite person or a pet or a favorite place or a favorite food, something that will just bring you, shift your attention away from the thing that is stressing you. And most of the time at the moment, the stress is coming at us through the media. So turn it off. Turn oh, I off couldn't agree more. Phones. Oh my goodness, I couldn't turn agree more. Turn off the news. Yeah. And come back into come back into your body. And this is where the, the connection with music is. So, you know, we taught real circuitous route around music. But music is an incredible technology that human beings have developed to help us feel good. When we interact with music, all sorts of things are happening biologically, psychologically, and socially within ourselves that help us to shift away from challenge. So when we listen to music, the sound coming in through the auditory nerve, it 
starts to interrupt and play with the heartbeat. It starts to shift the blood pressure. It starts to change the breathing. It begins to change the kinds of chemicals that are being released, in, released into the bloodstream. It starts to shift the mood. So the psychology will start to, to change. It allows emotions to start to run freely. So if there is sadness or grief, music can allow that to come up in a way that feels safe and manageable. It allows us to shift our relationship to the world and to the people around us. If we are participating in music or we are sharing a musical experience, we begin to shift our relationship. We, we bond in a different way. So interacting with music, it's extraordinarily pleasurable for us and it helps to regulate our nervous systems in a way that other activities don't. So this is my the, the big tip, connect to your body and you can connect to your body through music, music that you love, specific to you, that, that makes, that connects you to other moments and times in your life when you felt better or other people that were really supportive or just a feeling that you want to have. Um, so there, that's a long, complicated answer maybe. but Well, I don't think it's very complicated because I've seen it in my own life. Now, I got a question there in the recent weeks about performance and mm -hmm. a lot of people listening to this podcast are either learning music or they're really trying to get through the thresholds of music learning to get to a higher level of perfection uh, trying yeah. to achieve their dream sound i suppose in many ways now the question was i perform terribly today how can i perform better on stage what would you say to that question uh it's a great question i think there are there are two two sides of this question so one side is about what happens before you go on stage and the other side is what happens when you're about to go on stage or when you're on stage. So let's let's tackle the before you go on stage bit. So first thing is preparation. Be as prepared as you possibly can be. That for me is not necessarily about perfection. There is a difference here. I think in the classical music world, as we said before a few minutes ago, this idea of perfection can be a barrier in itself. It can put up a load of internal blocks and internal judgments and shame and all sorts of different things that are actually going to stress out your nervous system. So I would encourage you to let go of the idea of perfection and look instead at an idea of excellence. What is excellence for you? And excellence can be about interpretation. Excellence can be about your level of research or understanding of what you're sharing. Excellence can be about the quality of experience. It's not necessarily about the kind of the burnished shine on the note, which I think is what we focus on. We put lots and lots of attention on oh, the perfection completely. of the sound yeah. and yeah. not enough attention on the excellence of the experience. As a musician and as someone who uh, encounters and works in music all the time, the most excellent quality experiences that I've had have not been about the perfection of sound. They've yes. been about the communication. They've been about the quality of experience that I'm sharing. So musicians, think about this in a different way. This is not all about you on stage with your violin or your voice. This is about you in a collective experience with other musicians and with an audience. The audience are part of that energy. They are there to share with you and they are sharing their energy with you. So if you come into that space thinking only about the perfection of your sound, you'll put a barrier up between you and those people because all you'll be thinking about is you, 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 me, me, me. Instead, let's think about those people out there who want to hear 
something. They want to experience something. They want to hear a story told. That's that's what's going on in this collective space. And I, I think about it more and more as a kind of a ritual space, a space where community comes together to explore feelings and ideas in safety, things that they may not be able to explore outside in their everyday world. But in or maybe this even space, I would add to that, maybe they can't articulate what they're trying to experience, which is often the case. They don't know how yeah. to speak about what they feel. Absolutely. Or want to feel even. And absolutely. And music goes right in. It bypasses the conscious mind. It goes right into the heart, it goes right into the nervous system. I think you know, it's interesting talking to you as, a, as an Irish person. And I, I, rec I know a lot when I experience Irish, traditional Irish music, when people are really coming together to explore and play and enjoy music and enjoy enjoy the the whole experience of it that's a very different kind of approach to music yeah music. i was i was just thinking there yesterday thinking about the celtic irish music mm. scene and how that in ireland it's unique i suppose and this is what makes it special is you can walk into a public house in normal times and you can sit down and there is no hierarchy zero yeah and you've musicians stuck in a corner playing ill and pipe whatever uh violin or fiddle as they know call it the guitar whatever and they're just playing away there and everybody's sitting down having maybe a small drink or something and you're in a safe space and everybody's just enjoying the music there's no judgment criticism whatever and even if there's wrong notes it's coming if it comes from the heart yes. it's a special moment it's such a special moment i had an experience last week where i was speaking with somebody and i could just sense that they were coming from their ego yeah and i couldn't resonate with that said person, because they hadn't realized that, the, you know, they need to journey a little deeper to get down to the heart space. Yeah. And I think that's what's special about Irish culture. But just to return to our question about performance, um, I have seen two types of performers. And this I'm directing this question, really, because there's amateur musicians potentially listening to yeah. this podcast and the most impactful performer will communicate with the audience just like you're describing and they know it's not about them they're there to present a story and engage and have fun basically yes. but i think there's a journey to get there there's a yes. journey for the amateur musician to achieve that level of skill in a sense do their homework that you know strange sounds and strange noises and small stuff like that doesn't get in the way because as amateurs coming up the ranks these are the things which can just throw them Yes. And, you know, so I'm thinking that from my understanding, you've got to get into the sound, the nuance of the music. It may not be your dream sound yet, but you're getting there and get into the sound and just communicate that from your heart as much as possible. Absolutely. And don't and don't forget to smile. Absolutely. <laughs> like, don't yes. forget to smile because it can be, yes. you know, they can get so tense and that yes. fight or flight kicks in and they're scared. You know, I've seen it, you know, it happened myself. Now, where can people find you online? Where is your main um, for, you know, website and so forth that people can connect in? Uh, so you can find me at darrenabrahams.com. I think you'll you'll put that into the, the I'll show put notes. that all in the show notes, yeah. Uh, that's my main website. It's mostly about my therapeutic and coaching work, but I'm it's actually going through transition at the moment. So there'll be a lot of links into my other projects. That's always a good place to go. You can find me on all the socials there, although I'm not massively active. Um, and you can also find me through the Human Hive, my organization, which is the right. Human Hive. And 
are there opportunities for online trainings in relation to those people that might want to learn a new skill in the effort of giving back to humanity and being part of helping our world? Do you have any yes, suggestions absolutely. where people can go there? Yes. Yeah, so come, come come to the websites. Uh, also go to the Musicians Without Borders website if you're interested in using music as a tool for community building, conflict resolution, trauma regulation. We, we run regular trainings and, and often I'm involved with them. So wherever you, wherever you are in the world, particularly in, in mainland Europe, uh, there are trainings. Our main centre is in the Netherlands. And just before we finish, Musicians Without Borders sounds a really interesting project. Does that give an opportunity even for people to travel into other places to to once they have accomplished their trainings and so on to travel to places where there's real extreme issues going on in certain locations? I'm thinking, you know, places like Syria, Africa, um, even I know Haiti is a difficult place at the moment. But potentially, I mean, what we as an organization, we have our own permanent project set up in various places around the world. We have an incredible rock school in Mitrovica in Kosovo. We have a full-time project in um, Palestine. We have one in uh, Rwanda. We have one in Northern Ireland, uh, in Derry. Uh, we also have a project in El Salvador and various places around the world. So, and most of those projects out, what we want to do is raise capacity in local musicians. So it's not only about Europeans flying around the world bringing in their skills. It's about where is the need where you are. So come and train with us and we'll give you a set of skills and then you can go away and use that wherever you want. There are projects that you might be able to join into if you're suitable. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done in, in Europe at the moment around um, displacement and new, new people entering into your community. I was in Limerick only a few weeks ago working at the university uh, on, a, on a program around music, combining music and health research. And I know that there are there is a big uh, refugee asylum seeker community in, in Ireland in at the moment. Yeah, there is. In, yeah. yeah, and around, around the whole country. So there's work to be done in your local community. Don't feel that, it's exactly as I was saying about trauma before. Don't feel that trauma or need with music is happening somewhere far away. Look at the doorstep here. first. It's right here. That doesn't mean that you can't travel with your work and do and do amazing things in other places, but recognize that start where you are, start where you can, and see where that leads you. And build that up. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Darren, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast today, and we'll have you back in the future and keep us informed of any new developments, of any new work or opportunities for those who want to give back. Because I know there are people out there with amazing skill, but they don't know how to give back and they want to give back because they can see there's need. So, Absolutely. Um, and I would just, just to say that, you know, you read out that paragraph on my website before. Thank you so much for doing that. But I, I feel that musicians specifically have an important role to play in the world today. We oh, are completely, completely. Yeah, we, we had a historical role uh, as the, the truth tellers, as the healers, as the shamans, as the troubadours. This was our role in society was to heal and was to yes, story tell and yeah. was to shift. And we've lost that as music has become professionalized. So consider that the universe, the world is calling you right now. If you're a musician, it's calling you to bring your art and your music, your vibration. It's only, it only needs to be about you playing from the heart, the way that we've talked about, and you will shift the environment around you. So consider that when you're bringing, what you're doing is hugely important. I often think that people in, city streets pass by buskers and these buskers can be amazing 
And yes. particularly around this time of the year, even during the summer, whatever season, it doesn't matter, but Christmas is one season. And you're walking down the street and you hear this music and they could be singing some popular song from Dear Knows When or it could be some whatever. And it just raises the frequency, raises the vibration of that space. And then suddenly you have people collecting around and everybody feels good and it raises the energy. It Music is circulating everywhere. Yes. <laughs> but it's those, those buskers or those artists that are now badly affected again because of COVID. They need yeah. support. So if they're doing anything, all I'd say is support them as well to keep them there. Um, I think it's very interesting in old Celtic Ireland, there was um, the story of how important poetry was in Irish society back in Celtic Ireland. And that when the king of that particular county or province wasn't doing his job right, the poet would let them know satirically. Or mm. if he was doing a great job, he'd, you know, bring out a poem that was, you know, supporting the king of that province. And in a sense, we've lost the import, you know, that importance and that respect for that art form as well, because I often think how literature, poetry and literature in general is so interconnected, interconnected with music. Yes. And that the two come together, much like storytelling and opera, musical theatre and so forth. So if there's something going on in your local community, support those local artists. We need them these days. We need them Absolutely so agrees. bad. Yes. So a pleasure, Darren, and we'll have you back in the future for certain to talk about these topics in more depth, perhaps. But a pleasure to meet you today in the podcast. And thank you very much. Thank you to you. Thank you. Yeah.